following is a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more information on Shaw, for our teaching resources, visit www.shaw.org.nz. Well, we're uh, in the middle of a series at the moment, which is called Growing Up. And we're looking at uh, a number of practices, uh, embodied physical practices, that help us grow in our Christian faith, help us grow toward Christ and direct our hearts further towards Him. Uh, We've talked about serving and we've talked about prayer and hopefully you've had a bit of a chance to think about and put some of these things into practice because that's the idea that what we talk about become habits in our life, not just things we talk about on Sunday, but become embedded as habits. So as we go through the series, just think about how this translates on Monday Think about how this translates into your working life, your social life, your family life, and so on. Because by, through repetition, these practices have a way of sinking in deeply to our hearts and turning our hearts another notch toward God and toward His kingdom. So this morning, uh, we're talking about Scripture, the practice of feeding on and nourishing on the Word of God, Scripture, as a spiritual practice, as a discipline that trains our hearts toward Christ. So I want to to ask you to pull out your Bible. If you've got a Bible this morning, if you've got a physical Bible, this is a good day to have it out on your lap there, and you can turn open to Psalm 1. If you've got the Bible on your phone or on a tablet, uh, pull that out and open it up to Psalm 1 as well. Whatever form you've got the Bible, if you don't have one, that's okay. Just steal it from the person next to you, or the the words will be on the screen uh, in a little while anyway. But um, as you've got the Bible open there, I want to ask you, just as an icebreaker here, just as a, as a social experiment, uh, on the count of three, I want you to yell out the name of the translation of the Bible you're using, if you know what it is, okay? So if it's NIV or NASB or whatever, uh, if you know the translation you're using, yell it out. If you don't know, uh, just yell out, don't know. If you don't care, just yell out, don't care. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, yell out, didn't bring one. Uh, but if you do know the translation, yell it out, and let's just see what happens. All right, ready? One, two, three. NIV! <laughs> Did you hear the resounding NIV? <laughs> it's like a chorus of NIV. 400 years ago, that would have sounded like KJV, King James Version. Now, the NIV is the big deal. Yeah, interesting, interesting. I wasn't sure what result that would have. So, a couple of Bible statistics to uh, kick off here. A lot of you obviously have the NIV. As of 2012, the the whole Bible, the complete Bible, had been translated into 518 different languages. Uh, There's still a further 2,798 languages which have some portion of the Bible translated into that language, but not the whole thing yet. And then within English translations of the Bible, which most of you are probably using today, there are around about, estimated to be about 900 different English translations of the Bible. So when you all yelled out NIV, that's one, and there's another 900 besides that. A lot of different English translations. And then within English translations of the Bible, you've got your niche Bibles, you know, like the Teen Study Bible and the Woman's Devotional Bible and so on, within particular translations. Uh, some of the more interesting ones that I came across were the Surfer Bible, yeah, it does exist. Yep, yep. So you can hang 10 with Jesus. Yes. Does anybody even say that anymore? Uh, and also my personal favorite, the Holy Bible Stock Car Racing Edition. Yeah, it, it really is out there. Yep. And it's the NIV. Look at that. Yeah, so that's what you call the ultimate niche marketing. Stock Car Racing Bible. 
Yeah. Still estimated that uh, the Bible sells about 100 million copies annually. So the Bible is still big business. It's interesting, though, that um, you know, we live in a generation where we have more physical copies of the Bible and electronic copies of the Bible than any other generation in history, more translations of the Bible in more languages than any other generation in history, and yet so many people and so many Christians still really struggle to read their Bible, really struggle to find the time to read it and to know how to read it well. Uh, I would say anecdotally, the majority of Christians, in my experience, don't have a regular practice of reading and feeding on the Scriptures. And uh, I think for a lot of people, the time just escapes them. They, they find it very hard to carve out the time and they just get through the day and through the week and they just haven't, haven't got to it. Um, you feel like you're exhausted and you just don't have the physical energy to really engage with Scripture. Or you just don't have the motivation and there's just no natural interest there to really pick up this book and read it. And then people that do read the Bible often express a lot of frustration and when they read it. It's one thing to finally get yourself there and you open the Bible, but a lot of people just find it hard. They don't necessarily understand what they're reading. Perhaps they don't have the background or the history to know what's happening um, in the passage they're reading. A lot of people can't find the story or the verse they're looking for when they need it. You know, we've all been there, haven't we? You just can't find that, that passage that you want. Uh, and a lot of people read the Bible but just don't have any real sense of it drawing them closer to God, to be honest. They, just, they, they read it, they try to be faithful, but they just struggle. They don't feel like it's a real uh, spiritual experience for them. Now, we could talk all morning about how we don't read the Bible like we should, and yada, yada, yada. But again, I've committed that this series is not going to be a big beat-up session, so we're not going to just bang ourselves over the head with, um, with all the negative stuff. What I want to do this morning is simply talk about a way of reading and a way of engaging with Scripture that I've personally found to be really life-giving and really fulfilling, and a way that I think is really neglected in our own culture and our own day and age. As I was growing up, uh, as a teenager, as a young adult, a lot of the way that the Bible was talked about, when people talked about it at all, was around the importance of Bible study. You've got to study the Bible. Now, I'm all for Bible study, I really believe in it, and I think it's really important for Christians. But that was kind of all people talked about. You've got to have this intellectual engagement with the Bible. And different people had different methods and versions and acronyms for how you study the Bible and one of the common ones was observation, interpretation, application. You move through these stages, kind of in a scientific, very methodical, very rational, very cognitive, linear kind of process. Now, again, nothing wrong with that. But in my experience, Bible study has been so emphasized that it's become almost the only way of reading and engaging with Scripture. And the reality is there are other ways. There are other ways of entering into the passages that we're reading, and ways, I think, that can maybe connect a little bit more with our soul and with our heart. Again, I'm not saying put Bible study aside, but I'm saying I think we've so emphasized it, perhaps to the neglect of some other ways of approaching and engaging with Scripture. So I want to talk about a different way of approaching Scripture this morning that's not in the category of Bible study. And I want to get this and draw this from Psalm 1, and the way that it talks about the Scriptures. So let's read this psalm, beautiful psalm. We'll read it together and note particularly what it says about the law of the Lord. 
in verse 2. So here we go from, from verse 1. I'll read it to you. Blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked, or stand in the way that sinners take, or sit in the company of mockers, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord, and who meditates on his law day and night. That person is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season, and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever they do prospers. Not so the wicked. They are like chaff that the wind blows away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked leads to destruction. Now, clearly there's a, there's a link here between this picture of a, of a fruitful tree, this person who's like a fruitful tree bearing spiritual fruit, and the law of the Lord, and their value for the law of the Lord. For us, I think we can safely take the law of the Lord in verse 2 to be the Bible as we have it today. It wouldn't have exactly meant that for the readers of the psalm. They only would have had parts of the Old Testament at this stage and they would have thought specifically when they heard the law of the Lord mentioned of the first five books in the Bible, the law. But for us in the fullness of the biblical story, when we hear the law of the Lord, I think we can quite fairly and accurately think this is the whole now revealed word of God, the scriptures for us. And notice the way that we're encouraged to engage with the scripture in verse 2, whose delight is in the law of the Lord and who meditates on his law day and night. I don't know what you think about when you hear the word meditate or meditation. Maybe you think of someone sitting cross-legged, palms up with a low hum in this kind of out-of-body, surreal, ecstatic kind of experience. That's kind of the stereotype of meditation. Uh, there's a lot of forms of meditation uh, in the world today, in a range of cultures and a range of religious and non-religious settings. In fact, meditation is making something of a comeback today. Uh, there was a recent Time magazine cover story on meditation, um, a particular form of meditation under the guise of mindfulness. And mindfulness it, broadly speaking, is the practice of emptying ourselves of all external and internal distractions by various means so that we can be fully present to whatever it is we're giving our attention to in a given moment. And meditation and mindfulness are big business. More and more corporate organizations have got meditation rooms now in their premises where people can go to do meditation or yoga, whatever they're into. And they're realizing that this can, be, can have an effect, a positive effect on employee productivity. Now, I would say from a Christian perspective that meditation is something we have to be discerning about. That there are many forms of meditation and many of them do have their roots traced back to various Eastern philosophies, particularly Buddhism. And, and to the degree that those influences come through, in the particular meditation practices. I think we have to be very circumspect and very careful about that. But, on the other hand, I think there are a lot of Christians who tend to throw the baby out with the bathwater when it comes to meditation. And they just dismiss any mention of meditation because they immediately associate it with pagan religion, Eastern mysticism, and Buddhism, and they want nothing to do with it. And for them, meditation is just anathema. It's not part of the Christian faith at all. And the problem with that is that the word's in our Bible. It's right there in Psalm 1. And that's not the only place 
We're encouraged numerous times in Scripture to meditate, to meditate on the works of the Lord and particularly to meditate on the Scriptures themselves, to meditate on the law of the Lord. So I think what we need to do is not dismiss meditation out of hand, but to reclaim a Christian understanding of what meditation is and to reclaim a gospel-centered, Christ-centered practice of meditation as the Scriptures themselves call us to do. So, back to Psalm 1. This word meditate in verse 2 is the Hebrew word haga. Everybody say haga. You've got to get that guttural sound in the back of your throat, you know, haga. There it is. Yeah, like haggis, but haga. Now, that word, it crops up numerous times in the Old Testament. It's translated various ways, not always translated meditate, interestingly. That's obviously an English translation from Hebrew, but it's translated in various ways. One of the more interesting times that this word crops up in the Bible is in Isaiah 31. You don't need to turn there, but let me just read this little passing reference of Hagar in Isaiah 31, verse 4. As a lion growls, a great lion over its prey. Now that word growls is the same word. It's the word haga. The same word that's translated meditate in Psalm 1. Same Hebrew word. It sounds quite strange, doesn't it? What is a lion growling over its prey got to do with meditating on the law of the Lord? Well, just picture that lion for a minute. Picture that lion with its prey, maybe a young baby goat. Or maybe if that's a bit too grisly for you, picture a dog with a bone. That might be a bit nicer. It's the same concept, right? So picture a dog chewing on a bone, a big, juicy, meaty bone. Now, what does that dog do? He chews it, he licks it, turns it over in his mouth, sucks every little bit of juicy goodness off that bone. Sometimes, you know, you hear dogs making that kind of low growly sound, that little rumbly sound, and it's, it's a pleasurable sound for them. You know, like they're enjoying themselves. They're not in any particular hurry with this. Sometimes they'll bury the bone, go away, come back to it later. They're, they're meditating on the bone. That's what is happening there. So you could say in Isaiah 31, that lion is meditating on its prey. A dog meditates on a bone, and we are called to meditate on the Word of God. Now, for me, that shifts meditation into a different category. Now, it's not about this kind of process of emptying our minds, although we do need to try and free ourselves from distraction, but it's much more a process of filling our minds and hearts with something, which is Scripture. This is not just an intellectual thing. Meditating on God's Word is not just about cognitive study. It's not a scientific, deductive, step, 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 step kind of process. It's much more holistic than that. It's much more earthy. It's much more grisly and growly than that. And it's much more fun. Chewing on a bone is a pretty pleasurable thing for a dog. Chewing on Scripture should be fun and engaging and pleasurable for us. It means turning Scripture over within ourselves, within our minds and our hearts, and sucking each little bit of juicy goodness out of whatever passage we happen to be in at the time. Yes, that involves our brains, but much more it involves all of us. You might even let out a little growl, a little rumble at times, you know, that's okay too in meditation. Meditating on Scripture is about engaging with the text that's in front of us. 
not just sitting back, doing nothing, trying to empty our minds. It's quite an active thing. It's applying ourselves to the passage that's in front of us and trying to draw all that we can out of it in partnership with the Holy Spirit. Now, that does require a certain stillness. Meditation's an active thing. It's filling our mind with Scripture, and it's feasting on the Word of God. But it does involve slowing down. It's just simply not possible to do meditation in a hurry. You can't just grab a verse. It's not just going to be a quick glance at the Word for today. It's, it needs to be a slower, more deliberate process than that. And I would encourage you to think about how you could develop a habit of meditation. I'll talk through how it, how it might look in a minute. But just in terms of time and space in your own weekly schedule, some kind of daily rhythm of meditation. Uh, you might do this as part of a longer quiet time or devotional time with God. You might have other things, worship, maybe study of God's Word. But maybe five to ten minutes in there could be meditation on Scripture, meditating on God and His works as revealed in His Word. A daily practice like that gets you in the rhythm and it teaches your heart that this is a practice you're wanting to cultivate in your life. Try to find a place that's going to be as free as possible from distraction. You don't necessarily have to be alone. You might do this in the bus on the way to work. But it needs to be a time and a place where you can try to minimize distractions that are around you and distractions within your own heart and mind. It involves slowing down. It involves giving yourself a good few minutes to be still with the Lord and focus on this practice. So let's say you, you do that. You get there, you're in this space, you've got five or ten minutes to practice meditating on Scripture. What do you actually do? What do you fill it? And this is where it can get really loose and you can get discouraged if you're not careful because you can just do the old flick and point method and hope for the best. But you need a plan. You need some kind of plan, in order, at least in order to get going with this. So I want to suggest one particular form of meditating on Scripture that you might like to try. It's called Lectio Divina. It's a really ancient practice. It exists in various forms. We've, we've practiced it before in the context of our church service. It's something you can do in groups or just as easily as an individual. And it's one way, only one way, but one way of practicing meditation on Scripture. As far as which, which passage of the Bible to meditate on, I would encourage you to work your way through the Psalms. I just think there's no better place to meditate on the Bible than the Psalms, Israel's songbook and prayer book. You can work your way through. There's 150 of them. Take one a day or just part of one a day. And if one of them doesn't particularly connect with you, flick to the next one because there's so many moods and emotions. They span the whole continuum of human experience. So there'll be a Psalm that connects with where you're at on a given day. But working your way through from 1 to 150 is not a bad way to go. And again, it gives you a plan so that you're not just at a whim every time you try and do this. So here we are. We're ready to meditate on Scripture. We're opening up and we're in Psalm 1 or whatever psalm you happen to be in that day. Now, the process of Lectio Divina itself has four stages to it. And I want to talk through what these are. And then we're going to practice this together. And we're going to take a few minutes in our service to go through a Lectio Divina ourselves. Now, the four stages, don't see them as having to be rigidly linear. 
they can overlap. And I find that the more I do this, the more they tend to overlap and kind of mesh together in an organic whole, and that's, that's, that's fine, that's great. Sometimes you can circle back to one or two, so don't see these as having to be really set in stone, but I'll talk them through because at least to get started, it's helpful to practice these in progression. So the first stage with Lectio Divina is called Lectio, and it simply means reading. Lectio Divina, by the way, the whole thing simply means sacred reading. The first stage is Lectio. We read the text. But when you read the text that's in front of you, if you're practicing meditation on Scripture, don't just read it in order to process it, to get through it, to intellectually absorb it, and to be done with it. Read it slowly. We're not very good at this, but slow down. Stop yourself after every phrase or at the end of every line. The Psalms are particularly good for this because often in the Psalms you see that little word selah, you notice that after each few lines and pop up in various psalms. Translators differ over how to translate that most precisely, but I think the best translation was offered by Eugene Peterson, who said, Selah simply means shut up. <laughs> Just shut up and think about that and let that soak in. So have plenty of Selah as you read. Pause and stop and just let it sink in and soak in deeply. It may not feel comfortable or natural to do that because we're so fast-paced, including with our reading practices, but force yourself to slow down. So we read the text. And then the second stage is meditatio. And this is the heart of it. This is where we meditate on the text. This is where it's helpful to have that image of the dog with his bone, that we chew the text over. And I find it's helpful, having gone through Lectio and read the text, to then ask the Holy Spirit to settle something on my heart a word, a phrase, an image from what I've read. It may just be a single, may out of the whole psalm, it may just be one word that, that God is just wanting to press onto your heart or a particular picture that's come through that he just wants to have you sit with for a few minutes. And as you receive that or as you think about what made the most impression from your reading, chew that over, turn that over in your mind, in your heart. Explore every possible dimension of it. Ruminate on the text and let it just percolate away there within you without having to come to any particular answers, without having to do a lot of academic study, but just turn it over in your mind and allow that picture and that sense and that word or that promise or that thought to just settle within you. In this process of meditatio, we need to engage one of our greatest God-given gifts, which is our imagination. Some Christians get weary of imagination because it sounds like fantasy. It sounds like we're just going to go make stuff up. But that's not what biblical imagination is. Biblical imagination is the creativity of picturing and really entering into what Scripture tells us. Uh, I love the distinction that Wendell Berry makes between fancy or fantasy and imagination. He says, fancy wrote, Mary had a little lamb. Inspired imagination wrote, the Lord is my shepherd. That's a good distinction. What we're after is inspired imagination, taking after the writers of Scripture who were truly inspired by the Spirit. But this kind of imagination really enters into what you're reading. So if you're reading you know, Psalm 91, he who dwells in the shadow of the Most High will rest in the shelter of the Almighty. You picture God as that eagle hiding you under the shadow of his wings. And you let that settle in your heart. You imagine it. 
You enter into it. Or if you're in Psalm 150, with that symphony of instruments, all praising God, or one of the Psalms that talks about every part of creation praising God, you imagine it. You imagine the symphony, maybe the cacophony of voices and noises all resounding in praise of the Almighty. And you really feel it with your whole being and your whole body. And you ask the Lord to enable you to just be there and be in it and let it sink into the fiber of your being. That's meditation. It's not just ticking a box and understanding it. It's truly experiencing it, and it's truly meeting the living word, Jesus Christ, in the pages of the written word. So we come through Lectio, Meditatio. Sometimes at that point, it's helpful to circle back to Lectio, to read again, in view of what the Spirit is saying and doing within you. Perhaps come back and read the text again. Perhaps something else will stand out, or the same thing will sink in more deeply. And then the third stage is oratio. And this is our response to God through his word. It's really at that stage allowing whatever the deepest response of your soul is to what God is showing you and to what you're experiencing in this process, allowing your soul to respond to God. That may be through a word, but it may not. It may just be through a sigh of wonder. It may be through posture, through lifting up your hands in worship to God. It may just be through your heart turning toward God in worship. It may be through a song. Maybe whatever the response, whatever the most natural, you don't force it, you don't try and dredge something up, you just open up your soul at this point in a ratio and allow your soul to respond to its maker and allow your soul to respond to what it is being fed on as God feeds us through his word. And then the final stage is contemplatio. There's a couple of things here. One with contemplatio is just being still with God. And by this stage, you're starting to to come to the end of the process. And there's a time of just resting, with just being in God's presence and appreciating the feast that you've just had. It's like sitting back after a big meal and just resting. Just sitting back in a lazy boy after Christmas dinner. Just resting. That's what contemplatio is. You know, you've been, you've been filled. Now, you might not feel any different. That's fine. But you appreciate that there's more happening here than you may be emotionally and consciously aware of. It's appreciating that you've met with the risen Christ in the Scriptures and appreciating what he might have shown you, revealed to you, done in you in that time. But contemplatio also has an active dimension of it. This is the phase in which we also discern how does the Lord want me to carry this forward so that Lectio Divina doesn't just stay in a moment, but we we prayerfully discern how can I carry forward this attitude, this thought, this impression that God's placed on my heart. He's shown me with a new depth that I'm truly held in the shadow of his wings. Now, how can I make that real in my life tomorrow? How can I live with that sense? How can I take this forward? Again, this is prayerful. It's not just trying to come up with answers and an action plan. It's allowing God to settle in your heart the ways in which you might keep this percolating, keep this in front of you, and allow it to actually shape who you are and how you think about yourself and how you think about God and how you think about those around you. So even though contemplation itself 
has a very still quality to it. In the end, contemplation is also a life lived, a contemplative life that allows Scripture to shape us and form us and define us. And that's Lectio Divina. Um, I know that it might sound novel and new, and I know that you might be really keen to try it because everything sounds cool in Latin. But there really is nothing gimmicky here. There's really nothing novel and new. This is a very, very old practice. Please don't go into this expecting some kind of surreal experience or out-of-body levitation. This is simply a way of entering into Scripture and meeting with Christ in the text. Sometimes I practice this kind of meditation of Scripture and feel nothing in particular. There's often still an impression or a thought that comes to my mind or heart, but it's not always a deep, deep and strong sense emotionally of God's presence. Sometimes there is, sometimes there isn't. But please don't let that, your emotional feelings, be the barometer of how successful your practice of Lectio Divina is. Again, this is a habit. And through habit, we are formed. Our heart is formed over time. And even if you feel at times like this is kind of going through the motion and you have times where it can feel quite dry, just know that by feasting and feeding on the word, prayerfully and thoughtfully, with an openness to the Spirit of God, your heart truly is being shaped and led further to its true anchorage in Jesus. This has been a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more of our teaching resources, or to donate to our teaching resource ministry, or for more information on Shaw Community Church, visit www.shaw.org.nz. Alternatively, you can email office at shaw.org.nz or phone 09 415 0455. Thank you for listening.